Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back, and let's go right to the phones. Joining us from Tightline Outdoors, one of our favorite contributors, filling in for Nate Zielinski today is Dustin Ziegler. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning. How are you, Terry? You know, I'm doing well. I'm down here in Georgia today, and I'm not looking at any snow out the window. But I will admit that as much as I hated shoveling snow, we needed moisture. We needed the cold weather to solidify a lot of the ice fishing we're doing now. And I know you're going to tell us about different bites across different waters that Tight Lines guides on. But you're also going to spend quite a bit of time on your warm water species and not only locations, but techniques. But let's start out first by just kind of what are you hearing about hot bites in general? Um, I, I would say we're kind of in the middle of the winter right now. So we, we don't really have, I don't want to call it a lull or by any means, because um, fish are extremely active and, and can be triggered into biting. But... Um, some of our better bites uh, right now, I, for my personal opinion, is going to be just our, our walleye bite, um, our panfish bite. Um, bass are really, uh, especially smallmouth at Chatfield, they're turning on. Um, and, uh, you know, trout in the high country is always on. This is their peak part of the year. You know, trout are extremely active in the winter. And, and so um, around the state, I would say uh, those are my main focus right now. And then they'll switch over to, um, you know, stuff like pike um, as we move later in the season, maybe kokanee salmon as well. But as of right now, my main focus has been walleye, panfish, you know, uh, warm, um, warm water species, really. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. If you think about the mountains, we get earlier ice up in the mountains. The water is highly oxygenated. Those fish haven't been harassed for a while because, there's a point where you can't fish them in open water and you can't get on the ice yet. And those fish really get active. Then as they get pressured, as the oxygen levels drop in those mountain lakes, they're fishable, as you said, because the trout are available in cold water, they're active, but you got to change your techniques and your approach a little bit, maybe be a little more patient, do some things to trigger the bites a little differently. On the front range, we had a late ice fishing season. We really didn't have a lot of access to good ice till just really in the last few weeks. And so the fish are getting pressured, but a lot of it, they haven't seen the fishermen yet. There's plenty of oxygen level in these lower elevation lakes. So I would think that's probably a big reason you're seeing such great response from the warm water species. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been a great bite so far. Um, I don't see it slowing down, and as we get closer to late ice, it, it should only pick up more and more as these fish get uh, closer to, to spawning. I think you're right. I think this year we're going to see a good early ice, but because it came so late, we're not going to see that maybe doldrums in the middle. We're going to almost go from early ice to late ice with a continuous bite. Why don't you tell us some of the bodies of water you're fishing, what you're seeing, and how you're approaching them? Yeah, so Chatfield Reservoir right now I've spent a lot of time on. Of course, Cherry Creek um, is real close to my house, so that's my home body of water. I spent a ton of time there. Um, and just recently, Aurora Reservoir is starting to, to show good ice um, in, in a lot of the main coves. But uh, primarily, Cherry Creek will start there. Um, walleye bite is has really been fantastic. I have um, been out there several times uh, since first ice, and I would say... 
averaging, you know, at least two to three keepers every single trip out with uh, several undersized fish, so under 18 inches. Um, and really what I'm noticing is, is the fishing is very um, specific as far as a time period. So Cherry Creek uh, has a gizzard shad forage base, and so you are wanting to fish that um, first light and last light. Those are kind of your prime time uh, areas or, or times to actually be on that body of water and chasing these fish. Uh, main reason being is those gizzard shad really get disoriented when low light comes and they favor the top of the water column. And uh, so while I know that they're, you know, an easy meal at that point, um, the biggest thing that I'm getting asked is, you know, I'm seeing a hundred fish under, under me and I cannot get one to bite. They follow me from the bottom of the lake all the way up to the surface and then they, they turn away and, um, so many times anglers, when they're fishing for ice, they're, they're thinking so, um, finesse and slow and, and let the fish come in. And, and with these walleye that have a ton of forage base, especially at Cherry Creek, you really have to trigger them, uh, trigger their natural instincts as a walleye to bite. And so one of the biggest things I'm using, I'm always using, uh, some kind of artificial lure. I'm never using live bait at Cherry Creek in particular. Um, I'm using jigging wraps, spoons, blades, and then I am working them very aggressive to bring fish to me. And then when the fish comes in, I take that aggression level and cut it in half, but I'm still um, working that bait uh, extremely aggressive with the note that you have to give it a slight pause every once in a while to allow that fish to attack it. Um, and with that technique and with that cadence, that is, it's just been an epic bite for that. Um, I've also been on uh, Cherry Creek chasing uh, crappie and largemouth bass, actually. And when you can find certain areas of the lake, whether it's basin-related or trees um, that may be near the basin, those areas are really holding these fish and, and helping them to uh, move around the basin. Um, and it's really a simple technique. I mean, you're really, you can chase these middle of the day, you know, noon, high noon, one o'clock. I've had some of my best fights with the largemouth um, in real shallow water near stumps and trees and, and such. They, they just hang out. They, they'll move in and see what's there. Um, and I actually use a lipless crank for those, real small lipless and uh, worked uh, semi-aggressive, but then real subtle when that fish gets interested. Uh, and, and they come in and eat. And then the uh, crappie, I've seen an excellent amount of large crappie in Cherry Creek right now. Um, 15 to 16 inch uh, it has been pretty common for me to catch. And I'm catching them on the same gear that I use for my walleye, um, near basin transitions. Um, and so, yeah, that bite's been epic. Uh, Chatfield, though, Chatfield has, um, you know, it had dice just about everywhere. So it's it's kind of an open lake right now. You go where you want, um, pick out your, your honey holes, if you will. And um, I really love using fathead minnows or, you know, any kind of live bait at Chatfield. It just seems to trip their trigger. Uh, a little easier, which makes it easier on an angler. When I can take live bait and tip something with it, it takes the finesse out of it. It takes the cadence aspect and, and dulls it down just a little bit because you have something else that they can cue in on and eat. And so uh, that bite's been fantastic. Just make sure you're fishing structure in low light periods at the Gizzard Shad Lake as well. So low light periods are going to be hot. There can be an afternoon bite out there. Um, to some extent, but I would, if you're planning on, on doing a trip to either of these bodies of water, Cherry Creek or Chatfield, make sure you're, you're fishing those low light periods. You know, I, I got a comment too, and you talk about 
We know Chatfield's shad base, but it doesn't have nearly the shad of Cherry Creek because of how fertile Cherry Creek is. And you really showed us a great example and talked about how when there's just an overabundance of something to eat, you can't, like Cherry Creek, you can't just feed the fish. They're not looking to feed. Uh, when they do feed, it's at those dark twilight hours, and then they feed aggressively, and because the water's a little cooler, metabolism's a little slow, they don't have to eat for a long time, so they're not going to feed. So that reaction bite triggers an instinct, whether they're hungry or not, and that's why I never used to hardly fish the walleyes ever at Cherry Creek in the winter, just because it could be so difficult unless you know how to trigger them with a reaction strike. Chatfield has shad, but doesn't have shad in the amount that Cherry Creek does, so those fish you maybe can get by with that feeding bite by that minnow, but I'll bet you still get some on a reaction bite is that right oh absolutely yeah i i mean honestly i i can go to any of these lakes without minnows or live bait at all and and catch these fish i mean a walleye is a walleye and and they have natural instincts and if you can figure out that perfect little cadence which is typically a you know a disoriented bait fish look essentially you know dart in one way and then dart in the other or, or maybe a uh, a fish that uh is dying from hyperphagia still, you know, or bait fish that are just suffering. Um, at that point, you know, a, a spoon that flutters, stuff that's constantly moving and catching their attention and, and they don't have enough time to just stare at it and figure out what it is and what it's doing. Um, it just it just triggers them and that's the key to it. And, you know, if you really struggle, then then go to Chatfield, put a spoon on, tip it with a fat head minnow and and see what it does for you because you'll 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 get the bites you need but then run a jigging wrap right next to it. And when that, when fish come in and they're staring at the jigging wrap as opposed to your spoon, try to do something different. Don't work it with little shakes. Work it with snaps. Work it with, a, you know, pulling it away. Like lake trout fishermen love to play cat and mouse, right? And that's the exact thing we're doing just in a different kind of scenario. Hey, you mentioned another body of water, too, that um, is starting to cap up. And it fishes so completely different than the other metro bodies water and that's aurora reservoir what are you seeing happening there yeah so it's always late to the party when it comes to ice fishing but i absolutely love this body of water it has uh, tremendous trout in it it's got jumbo perch it's got walleye i mean everything you could want in a in a freshwater fishery it has and in, in, in good sizes um the biggest thing you have to worry about is is ice conditions there can vary so you want to be very very cautious especially with the amount of snow we're getting covering that ice you want to be spudding because you just can't see the ice below you and and can tell different sheets from another but with that being said um yeah it's uh it's a spot tail shiner um and perch forage base and so with that you know perch at night or low light they lay on the bottom they do not move um they they're hiding in a sense um same with the spot tail shiner they're very active during the day but then they lay low in the evening time. And so your walleye are actually active um, from sun up, sun down, and not necessarily you're not going to have those real particular prime time bite windows as you will Cherry Creek and Chatfield. You can actually catch, and I've done it several times, where middle of the day uh, at Aurora Reservoir, 11 to 1, I mean, I'm, I'm just whacking fish out there and, and of all species. Um, they're just, they seem to be very active. It's a deep, clear water system. So know that fish can see your presentation from 20 feet away, 25 feet away, no problem. Um, and so you're wanting to make sure that your presentation has 
no flaws in it. And that's one difference between Cherry Creek and Aurora um, is you can, you may have a, a couple flaws in your technique, but you can get away with that because it's such dingy water compared to Aurora where you have that, that system being so clear. Um, my main tip for that would be, um, you know, shiners. It's a spot tail shiner uh, fishery. So bring your shiners out with you and, and tip baits with that. And uh, you should see some success. Make sure you're fishing edges, those deep transition edges. Know that Cherry Creek being 25 feet deep max, um, Aurora's, you know, 80 foot, 90 foot max. So know that these fish are going to hold a little bit deeper than your fish at Cherry Creek. They may not be in that eight foot of water. Sometimes they can be because perch can be kind of in transition for spawn uh, late ice which we're coming into. But um, I would say that's kind of the, the tips in, uh, of the trade for Aurora. One other thing before I let you go, and those such great information, Dustin, thank you. But you and I talked earlier in the week, and you said one of the things you notice about ice fishermen, especially when they come on guide trips with you, a lot of them want to bring their own gear, and they don't understand the techniques. And one of their biggest mistakes is they have the wrong gear. Why don't you kind of expound on that? Yeah, you know, and it's not its not that they have the wrong gear necessarily. I, it, it is to an extent. So the way I'm, I, I'm rigging everything and the, the way I choose to, uh, you know, pair my rod and my reel and my line and, and then what I do with that um, is very specific to these bodies of water. I've, I've done this for multiple years and I've fine-tuned it to a point where um, it's very simple for me. And, and so many people come out and and they like a real spongy rod. They want to feel that bite. Um, and I am complete opposite. I love I, almost a broomstick. I mean, I use medium heavy rods um, in that 38 inch mark range. And um, they feel stiff to a lot of these anglers, even when running a size five jigging wrap or, or, or size seven jigging wrap. The biggest thing with it is um, understanding that you need to pair your lure with the rod and you need to be able to work that lure correctly um, with that specific setup. And so if you're you're using too soft of a rod with, let's say, a size 7 jigging wrap, which has been an extremely hot bait for me in the, in the past couple of weeks, um, it, you don't want it to bend the rod just with the lure on there. It's got to be stiff enough to where it can work that. Um, the other thing I'll say is, is, of course, using a fluorocarbon mainline uh, tends to help with uh, icing up on your guides and on your line and in your spool. And then um, I oftentimes, sometimes I don't, but oftentimes I'll run a barrel swivel 18 to 24 inches up on my line um, just to negate that line twist. So then when I do pause my bait after working it so aggressively down there to call fish in and I pause it for them to come in and strike, it's not doing a, a, a helicopter motion. It's staying still. It's maintaining its position, and that's going to draw more bites for me at the end of the day. So that's just a couple things that, that I do with my I setup and, um, and teach others. I couldn't agree with you more. Just tremendous information, Dustin. If people want to book a trip or just get a hold of you guys for more information, how do they do that? Yeah, biggest thing, um, just stay tuned to our Facebook page. There's so much happening on that. Um, of course, Ice Addiction, our Grand Lake, our final Grand Lake tournament is February 19th. Stay tuned. We'll be on Facebook just blowing that up, um, as well as tips. We have a, a segment starting soon for lure modifications to increase success this ice fishing season that I'll be leading. Um, so biggest thing, check out our Facebook page. If you want to book a trip, go to uh, tightlineoutdoors.com and find uh, the guiding section there, and we'll be happy to get you out there and teach you all our tips and tricks. All right, my friend. Great, great information, Dustin. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me on.
You bet. That's Dustin from Tight Line Outdoors. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to change things up as our dog training expert, Ben Garcia from Hideaway Kennels, is going to join us and uh, give you some points for training at home and tell us when might be a good time to get that puppy. All that more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. They've got locations up and down the front range. If you're an outdoor enthusiast and you haven't stopped in Jack's, you need to do that now. Uh, just everything you would ever need for your outdoors. And you're listening to us here right on the fan because of them. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, our dog training expert, one of our favorite segments on the show, from Hideaway Kennels, Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I got to tell you, I got a lot of response off two weeks ago when you talked about the learned behavior of puppies, the things people do that sets them up for have issues later on. Uh, just got a ton of positive uh, comments on that. So it was really people are really enjoying some of the things you bring, and along that line, a lot of people start the training of their pointers and retrievers at home by themselves, or they try to train them entirely by themselves. What are some of the things they should do and what are some of the pitfalls? Yeah. I mean, I think, and then thank you for having me on a couple weeks. So that was a great segment to, to cover and go over. And it's always fun to think of those things. Um, you know, the thing that, you know, obviously things we've talked about, you know, like you don't want to be playing tug or with your dog. You don't want to be doing things that are going to conflict with you later, but if you've got a good foundation and you've got your obedience down on your dog, let's just say like a retriever, the one thing we see a lot of people do, and um, and I see it a lot, it's really kind of funny when my daughters are playing soccer and we're at the park and somebody's got their lab out there and they got a bumper and I always get excited because I see, that, you know, we all can't stop and, and not look at a lab puppy, right? Like you, you got to watch them. And uh, they'll make the dog, they'll get the bumper out, get the dog excited, throw it, the dog will go get it, bring it back. They'll throw it again, and then all of a sudden they're going to make the dog sit and stay, and the dog looks at him like, what, what are we doing? We just went, you know, go, and now we're stopping. And, and that's one that a lot of folks do at home that they really should pay attention to is start the dog off where you're going to be a year from there duck hunting. I, me and you have talked about it a ton, blind manners. You know, if you're, if you're duck hunting and you have a dog pacing around everywhere, it, one is it's dangerous and it's annoying and the ducks see it. So make the dog sit and stay if you're left-handed, you know, the right side, right, the right side to be on. And then make them sit and stay. Give them your three retrieves on a sit and stay. Let them go get it. Bring it back. And then make the fun one at the end. So reward them at the end of the drill instead of the beginning. And, and that's one that really, I think, would help a lot of duck dogs stay focused and, and, and know not to break on the line when they start getting older and, and hunting, for sure. Yeah, it's just, it's difficult, you know, and I, as we've done these um, different activities and we've talked about training, you know, a lot of people are getting a dog, not only for a hunting dog, but they're getting it for their home pet companion, you right. know, and if you're buying just a little shelter dog and you're never going to hunt with it, obviously your interaction can be different. It can be more playful, but you still need behavior, but you really have to think about what you want as an outcome and what your what the reason you have that dog, don't you? You do. I mean, you got to think of where you want to go. It's, 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 um, it's kind of like your last segment, you know, I mean, all the outdoor industry is the same, you know, whether it's dogs or fishing, but if you have the wrong pole, it can ruin a whole day of fishing, as you know. And it's the same idea with the dog. If you teach all these bad things at the beginning that you think are great, and then you try to limit it at the end, 
you know, or the, or, uh, when the dog's too and you can't control it, you got a real struggle going on. And with pointers, we see it a lot, you know, where like they'll go to the back door and, and have the dog just bolt out the back door and the dog goes out and chases a Tweety bird or points it. And then they're ultimately learning what to do on a bird when they're hunting, you know? So, you know, if you have a pointer, make them low at the door, make them low, open the door, pet them, let them learn patience, let them learn to stand still and, and to know what they need to do. Then tap them on the head and send them out. You know, and that's any dog. I mean, that prevents bolting out the front door and getting, you know, hit by a car, chasing kids around. You know, those are all things we can think about regardless if you're hunting the dog or not. You know, you talk about, we talk a lot about pointers and retrievers. Is is yeah. it come down to the breed of the dog or does it come down to the way you train it or is it a combination? A combination. I mean, because the, the, the beauty of dog training is, is, not every dog's the same, you know, and that's where like books and at home stuff can be really difficult because you may get a dog and, and pick up a book and think this is great, but that dog, you know, that whoever wrote that book may have wrote it for one dog they had, you know, and then you'll suddenly you get a problem where your dog's not doing those commands because let's say they're a sensitive breed, they're 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 a dog that's sensitive, and you got a book that was written by somebody that's pretty strict. I mean, that can be a conflict right there in in dog training, and we see that a lot, and we've seen it a lot more. Um, the last 10 years with the power of the internet and people to watch videos, you know, and, and, um, me and you always joke about this in the industry. There's, there's always an edit button, an edit button when you film, you know, and sometimes yeah. those videos that you watch online, you're, you're not seeing like what happens if the, the, the dog just is having a bad day. What do you do? And, and if it's a good video, the trainer will tell you if your dog's having a bad day and the, the commands aren't working, put them up, you know, put them up for an hour or two, go back and get them again. You know, and because um, they can just have rough days, you know, and so yeah, it really is more of the individual dog and your individual outcome you want for that dog. And before we move on to one other subject, the biggest difference if I'm training a pointer or retriever, what's the biggest difference I have to keep in mind? Yeah, so for for pointers, I mean, this it's really fun to talk about. For pointers, it's going to be your woe. You know, you're going to work your woe drills because they got to stand on a bird and point it, as we know. Um, retrieving breeds, um, you, you know, they, they are the sit and stays, you know, and, um, and even if you're going to be hunting that retriever breed upland, sit and stay and heal and your basic obedience is the main one. But then we get into these versatile breeds, which are really awesome. And, you know, a lot of people have gotten into them with dogs that can do all of it. You know, they can pheasant hunt, they can quail hunt, they can duck hunt, you know, they can go goose hunting with you. And, um, and on those breeds, you want to make sure you're consistent and, and not dominating one command over the other. And what I mean by that, like, you want a 50-50 split. If you have a versatile breed, you want to make sure you're working woe as much as you're working sit. You, you don't want to overload your sit and do woe twice a week, and then five days a week you're working your, your other command and confuse the dog. Because dogs can be trained, as you know, to do amazing things, you know. And then you can train them for both. You just want to make sure you're consistent and the dog knows both movements from, from what you're asking and understands the command. So. Let's move on real quick. You told me earlier in the yeah. week that this is a good time if people are looking to get a puppy. Why is that? Yeah, this is the time of year if you're thinking of getting a puppy to act sooner than later. Because if you go in a cycle, of, you know, like Colorado and, and some of the western states, you know, upland hunting starts September 1st. So if you're eyeballing the September 1st, wanting to get out and chase, you know, Chartel or you want to do Ptarmigan, you know, or any of those, you know, rough grouse. You know, you're you're looking at an earlier season. So what you don't want to do is get a puppy in May that you know that's born in March 
and then you're not starting your training till you know October, and you just missed out a month of training. So now's the time to get that eight week old puppy, get started on your obedience, start your bird stuff in the spring. So then that way in the summer you're ready to go. You you know your commands. The dog knows the commands. Everybody knows what's going on, and then you're ready to go out and have a, a good time hunting where your dog's listening to you and understanding everything about what's going on. So that's why I like this time of year. And, and there's some really good litters out there. Um, there's some good page, good web pages to find, and we're always available. If somebody had a litter they were looking for a specific breed, generally, you know, we can point them in the right direction. Um, you know, we're, we're limited on what we breed because we do more training, but we definitely can recommend some really good breeders throughout the country of places to get puppies. Last question, because we're going to run out of time, and real quick, um, yeah. if if I'm looking at getting a dog right now, but I know that I want to take it like to hideaway kennels to do the real training. What point do I right. have to get it to before I can bring it to you? Yeah, we like a really solid foundation. And, in fact, most people that sign up for us um, for their training, we have them do an online class that um, a friend of ours does. And um, she does a great job, that, that trainer, that online class. And it just really lays down, one, is a, a solid foundation for the dog. But also the other part of it is that it makes it consistent of when we get the dog in, we know the obedience training it's been through. So um, it helps us. If, like, we had a dog um, over the winter we were training, and um, we just had some times with some issues with this pup. We just She was really lacking some confidence and really lacking being able to get through it. And I just went back to that online training and we would, we would do some online training drills that I knew that trainer had done with her and then put the birds back out. And man, she just picked it up really quick because consistency is the key on anything on animals. So that's why we like to have them do that online class. Cause it really gives us a, a jumping point that we can go forward with and really have a lot of success with the pups. And so. All right, Ben, we are out of time. If people want more information or they want to get a hold of you, how do they find you? Yeah, the best way is to get in touch with us through our webpage, which is hideawaykennels.com, or they can find us on Facebook at Hideaway Kennels also. All right, my friend, always great information. You enjoy the rest of the weekend. You too. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You bet. Ben Garcia from Hideaway Kennels. Just go to hideawaykennels.com and uh, check them out. You just won't do better than these guys. They're so good. We're going to take a time out. We come back. Brad Peterson is going to join us, and he actually listen to the committee meeting on uh, the mountain lion hunting ban that was trying to get through the legislature. We're going to bring you up to speed on the vote, but more importantly, we're going to bring you up to speed on the tenor of the conversation. All that more coming on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, uh, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones and joining us from Brad Peterson Outdoors is Brad Peterson. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Terry. Uh, pleasure having you on and you did some homework for me uh, this week and for yourself too, obviously. And I was traveling, so you listened in to a committee meeting. There was a law going through the Colorado legislature that was sponsored by four different people, I believe, and it was to ban some predator hunting in Colorado, specifically mountain lions, bobcats, and lynx. Now, lynx are already federally protected, so they weren't they weren't going to be changed in status at all. But both mountain lions and bobcats, we have a pretty robust population in Colorado, and the 
uh, Parks and Wildlife uses hunting to help control those populations and keep them where they don't overextend their impact on other animals in the environment. But a voice, so you listened in, this uh, bill had originally had four sponsors, and when this, it was kind of quietly going through the legislature, and then about two, three weeks ago, a bunch of us in the media, including this show, kind of put, shine some light on it, and a bunch of the sponsors dropped off. Now, I'll let you take it from there. What happened at the meeting, and what was kind of the tenor and the feeling you got from that committee meeting? Yeah, Terry, so I was able to listen online to do that at um, all the different committee meetings of the, the Colorado State House and Senate. And so I just had the, the audio on. But uh, as you say, originally it had four sponsors. It had dropped back to one by the time the bill got in front of the, uh, I think it's the Ag and Natural Resource Committee in the Senate that was hearing it. And they had the uh, sponsor present the bill, talk a little bit about it. And then they probably had two to two and a half hours of testimony from both people that were at the location there at the Capitol and then also people who were, you know, talking online. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, it was probably 60 to 70% against the bill of the testimony they received. And um, in the end, there was a vote. It's a five-member committee, and it was the bill was voted down four to one. And that means that it will not go any further in this legislative session. Now, the one interesting thing at the end when kind of all the committee members got a chance to speak before the vote took place is they really commented on how many emails they received on this bill and how that really influenced their decision. And they said that it was, you know, very strong opposition to it. And the other thing they thought that was really interesting is they said normally when you get this many emails about a particular bill, they're kind of form letters that go out and cover the exact same thing or, you know, sometimes it's the exact same letter and all you're doing is signing it. And they said that the majority of these were, you know, individually written, had individual stories or their own perspective on it. And that really made an impact. And I think that that is something important for the the outdoors, you know, the, the anglers and the hunters of Colorado to be aware of is that, you know, our legislature, our legislators do listen to the public when they come up for bills like this. And so you need to make sure to get out there and have your voice heard, whichever stance you have on that. And it, it can really be influential on these things that are impacting natural resources. Well, I think the fact that when the public outcry started that sponsors dropped off, I mean, it shows you, if you think about the economic impact, and I'm, I'm going to just give you what my feelings were. If we ban mountain lion hunting in Colorado, uh, we already have, uh, the director was on with me last week, and he thinks we have upwards of 6,000 mountain lions in Colorado. They're a hard animal to count. But we could really have a robust population if we didn't control it. And if those animals not only start affecting livestock, much like the wolves are going to affect livestock, that takes money from Colorado Parks and Wildlife to reimburse those people if, for their livestock. And that takes money that could go to other hunting and fishing resources. But also, 
you start getting a, a, an abundance of a predator, especially one that its main feed are deer and elk, you're going to see impacts on those populations that are going to affect your ability to hunt. Now, the people that typically put forward a bill like this are ones that are anti-hunting and fishing completely anyway, and they want to take away all your hunting privileges, and this is a way to pick away at it. That doesn't mean that every bill that would ban some form of hunting is bad. We need the proper laws. But I think you made the point that the emails and the attention this got once they got out into the media, I think the outdoor public has to understand the importance of their voice and also how the unified voice of the outdoor population because of the taxes they pay, the fees they pay, the revenues they bring to communities, the jobs they create in Colorado, a lot of these legislators all of a sudden go, holy cow, that's going to affect the town I represent. They're not going to be happy. And I think it has an impact. But I also think, Brad, and I want your feedback on this, that join an affinity group, whether it's the Elk Foundation, the Mule Deer Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, all these voices help give a unified voice to the outdoor public. Don't you think so? Yeah, there were there were several of the affinity group, uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I believe it was one of the, I think it was the Bighorn Sheep, uh, backcountry uh, hunters and anglers who all had representatives there who uh, did do testimony um, about their whole um their group and their opinion. And and that does carry a lot of weight when you can say I'm representing 7,000 members of this group. And I I do think that that is, you know, it's important to do that. And and it's, it's not just at the state legislature, um, but we also saw that, you know, a couple of years ago when the um, spearfishing issue came up, that that kind of became a a hot button issue and a group of, of anglers together got to, you know, got got the word out and they contacted a bunch of the the biologists and wildlife commissioners or parks and wildlife commissioners and that helped put a change on that issue as well so so both you know whether it's a bill or whether it's something that's going through um the process with parks and wildlife having your public voice heard is important and as we have more people move into the state you're going to have a more diverse group looking at, at what they want to do with the resources we have. And if we, as anglers and hunters, stay quiet, you know, there's times that certain things could get passed through here that could be detrimental and, and things that we, you know, aren't going to get back. So it's important to be a part of those affinity groups because a lot of times they're the ones who will let you know about some of these things going on. And if you're not, you know, spend a little time paying attention to whether it's on social media. You know, there's some hunting groups or, or angling groups who a lot of times bring up these issues. Or you sign up for um, the, the press releases from Parks and Wildlife, and they'll give you information going on at the commission level. But make sure that you're aware of what's happening because we really need to have the voices heard to protect you know, what has been traditional outdoor activities in Colorado. And so I I really stress that people take a little bit of time and effort to uh, get out there and become educated. And and when you find something that's of of interest to you, take that, you know, 10 or 20 minutes and shoot a little personal email off to either, whether it's in the, 
the House or Senate, you know, your local representative and then the people on the committee that are going to hear the bill, if it's going through parks and wildlife, you know, send it to some of the biologists and the, the people on the Wildlife Commission. And your voice will be heard. And don't wait till the last minute. Get out there early and your voice is heard a lot more if you're out there early than if you wait until they're making the final vote. I couldn't agree more. I want to make one comment, then I want to move on because we're going to run out of time. My gut feeling is these anti-hunting forces are pretty relentless and won't give up. And we need to be aware that we could see this same type of thing, like we did with the wolves, come as a referendum for a public vote. And we have to make sure we're aware of it and the proper information that anything we do is based on good science. Brad, real quick, only got a minute or two left. You seeing any good ice fishing opportunities out there? You know, there is good ice fishing opportunities out there. Uh, the snow that we have had has created a little bit of a, a different condition in that uh, there's a lot of slush out there. We had enough snow along the northern front range that is uh, pushing, weighing that ice down. So if you're in an area that hasn't been, had a whole bunch of holes punched, there is a little bit of slush out there, but you're still holding, you know, five, six inches of good ice around the the north front range on most of the places but with the snow you know make sure that you're out there checking it more than you normally would because things can change quickly but the bite at st rain has kind of started dying off for the trout a lot of the trout that were stocked early same with same with Boyd, those stocker trout have been caught out of there so it's a good time to look at you know either heading up to the mountains more of the red feather area i know 11 mile was just recently stocked but along the front range, start looking at your warm water fish, your pan fish, your, uh, you know, your bluegill, your crappie, your perch. Those fish are going to stay active, and they're starting to move a little bit shallow, as they often do towards the end of ice season. So where you might have been catching them in the basin a few weeks ago, and if you go there and you don't see them, don't be afraid to look to a little bit of the shallower depth. And, and I would say, you know, Douglas, uh, Boyd, um, some of the other local Why? ponds and even Jackson all have uh, pretty good bites going on for those warm water fish. All right, my friend, if people want more information from you or book a guide trip, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is on Facebook at Brad Peterson Outdoors or give me a call at 303-829-3998. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you again very soon, Brad. All right, thanks, Terry. You bet. Brad Peterson, always a great resource. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up on this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're just a tear in my eyes each night I cry myself to sleep. You're just a memory of a love I somehow couldn't keep. You're an empty bed beside me. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Of course, Teardrop My Eye is a one of the current cuts on our recent release EP of uh, songs that you can find virtually on any streaming service or social media by just uh, searching Wickstrom and Dobrith. Right now, before I wrap up the show, is Mr. Dan Jacobs in the studio? I'm right here. I do have a, I want you to put your legal hat on, and I don't expect an opinion out of you. I just want to get a leaning from you. There's a 
Colorado Court of Appeals just recently ruled against what has been traditional Colorado law, where in color in most states, the river bottom up to the high water mark is public land, and it's accessible to the public. In Colorado, they've extended the landowner's rights under the river, so it's private land. A court of appeals just kind of threw that up in the air. If this, I'm sure, will go further, what tends to happen? Do they look at general law and strength of what's traditional law, what how most states rule, what constitutions say, or do they look at established precedents more? Right, so... If, if the, well, the Supreme Court, if, because what you've said has gone to the appellate court and the appellate court has issued a ruling or no? Yes, they have. They've ruled against the existing Colorado law. Okay. So if they, so if it goes further, the Supreme Court is going to say, hey, do we want to take this up? Do we think this is a matter of such importance? Or is there a legal issue that is unresolved, right? Is there something that we need to take up and resolve? That's unclear and that we want to take it up. So if the Supreme Court decides that they want to take it up, then there's a lot of factors that they'll look into. Otherwise, it's just going to it's not going to change at all. The 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 what what is happening now is that's the law. That's it. However, once the Supreme Court takes a look at it, a, a whole factor of things that can happen. They can say sometimes courts rule on what's called policy, right? They, you know, they, they take a look at what do they think is the best policy and then they find a way to write an opinion that fits into that, right? Like for, I'll give you an example, Terry, back in the day, remember when railroads were really important in our country, right? And a railroad would, you know, sparks would fly and it would uh, cause a couch or a, a house to catch fire. And then that would, you know, cause another house uh, to catch fire. And then the whole town would burn down. Well, eventually the courts would say, you know, we'll bankrupt the entire railroad system if we hold them responsible for the entire town from burning down. So it, it became a policy ruling that they could only be held responsible for the one house or two houses burning down. And, hey, man, you got to get insurance or whatever. Everybody else is kind of out of luck because it was a policy ruling. So they may look and say, well, what's the good policy for, you know, our, our citizens in this state? What makes sense now? Laws forever may have been, you know, because I heard you talking about this on the way in. Of course, I listened to the Terry Wickstrom show coming on the way in. The fan outdoors or outdoors or you give me a hard time. I always say it wrong, right? But um, what makes sense from that standpoint? Or they may say, hey, here's what the law is clear. It was misapplied by the appeals court. So we're going to look at precedents and say this is what it should be. Or they may say um, this is a matter of first impression that we need to, you know, set a new precedence for. So a lot of things could happen if the Supreme Court, but they have to decide first, do we even want to take it up at all? All right. We're going to run out of time, and Ty's going to need to give us a, a, a station Beals. ID. Oh, yeah. Ten, ten seconds real quick. New coach, plus minus in the middle. Uh, hey, you know, he's, he seems like a nice guy. He's, he's, he's going to be fun to let him get out there. He needs a quarterback though. Get him a quarterback. All right, my friend, I will get close this out so you can talk sports. All right. Uh, this will close out Terry Wickstrom. Join us every Saturday from nine to 11. Follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Follow our music at Wickstrom and Dobrith. We'll let the Eagles take us to Dan Jacobson Sports on 104.3 The Fan.